The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. Today's guest is Camila Vergara. We talked about Chile's new left-wing government and the new president-elect, former student leader Gabriel Boric. We chatted about what to expect from the new government in the context of a divided Congress, how the protest movements that first emerged in 2011 have given rise to both the election of the new government and the Constitutional Convention which has been tasked with rewriting the Pinochet-era constitution. We also talked about the presidential campaign of Boric's opponent, the far-right José Antonio Cast, who despite losing the election, has displaced some of the less extreme conservative currents in Chilean electoral politics. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon, and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is The Care Crisis, What Caused It and How Can We End It? In the book, Emma Dowling charts the multifaceted nature of care in the modern world, from the mantras of self-care and what they tell us about our anxieties, to the state of the social care system. She examines the relations of power that play profitability and care off against each other, exposing the devastating impact of financialization and austerity. The Care Crisis, What Caused It and How Can We End It by Emma Dowling is out this month in paperback from Verso Books. And now to today's interview. Camila Vergara is a critical legal theorist, historian and journalist from Chile and the author of Systematic Corruption, Constitutional Ideas for an Anti-Oligarchic Republic. If you'd like to hear the extended hour-length version of today's interview and of other episodes, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of PTO on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. If we start by talking about the new president, Gabriel Boric, the leader of the new left-wing approved dignity government, could you say something on Boric's political background and in particular, how he emerged as part of the student protest movement of 2011. Yes, thank you. So thank you for having me in the show. And yeah, this is a very important question because uh, Gabriel Boric is kind of a, has gone on transition from an activist, a student involved in the protest movement of 2011, asking for a free college. He now has been in politics for a while in Congress and has uh, turned uh, very responsible. So coming from a very more dissent part of the politics, of this political spectrum, and uh, bringing the youth in this uh, old Congress, now he has become very much uh, part of the new ruling class in a way in Chile, but uh, still uh, grounded in the student movement. Although he's very young, he's only 35, he has now been 
in Congress for quite some time. Yes, and he came in this uh, broad coalition from the left that was named Frente Amplio, the broad front. There are the student leaders from that time and the student leaders from like the center left to the more left and even center, I would say, center even right. People that came together and there are today in his cabinet. So it's this new kind of a, a cohort of student leaders that were the heads of the different universities in Chile and who came into politics, became part of the structure, and now they're in the ruling coalition. And just on the student protest movement, for people outside Chile and, and who maybe don't know too much about the movement, could you talk about just the scale of, of the protest movement around that time in in 2011 and, and the particular role that Boric played in it? Yes. So he was one of the leaders, one of the most visible leaders. He is from Punta Arena, so the Patagonia, so very far away from the center, which is uh, also remarkable. And this came in the, in the midst of other protests. So there were protests also against the uh, hydroelectric plants in the south, against, you know, the pension system. There's always some kind of protest coming out of the neoliberal model in Chile in the last, uh, I don't know, 15 years, I would say, with more force since 2009 with strength, uh, a lot of strength. And, and he was one of the most visible leaders in this protest for free education because uh, the same as actually in the United States where college education has become mostly private and it is financed through loans. Basically, the generation of the were first generation in college or second generation, but very kind of middle class people could not uh, afford going to college otherwise than, you know, uh, having a, a loan that it would be very uh, a burden into the family business. You know, it's like this is this is a problem with the working classes. People, you know, are the um, parents going into uh, driving taxis to pay for uh, the education of their offspring in a way. And uh, this is a new generation that has a lot of debt. And this is a burden uh, for society. So they were pushing for free college and the kind of right wing and more um, traditional parties that were saying that there was a very elitist form of protest because there were other, you know, forms of uh, parts of the, the educational system that were lacking, like uh, the nursery, you know, primary and secondary education were underfunded. So basically giving just free college to this new generation in a way would go against the most vulnerable in society. And uh, these protests were very strong. And at, at some point they came out of hand and there were a lot of violence around the edges. And this student movement leaders, they were very against outbursts of violence around the marches that they the mobilizations that they they were preparing now uh, he is also very against the protests that cause trouble in a way disorder and he actually signed the uh, approved the anti-barricade law which came about a month after the uprising of 2019, October 2019, and came to criminalize protests, basically, the building of 
you know, this um, barricade to uh, stop the traffic, which has been in Chile and elsewhere part of the repertoire of contention of protests. If we come up to the election, what was the specific policy platform that Approved Dignity and Gabriel Boric ran on? So, yeah, Approved Dignity had, has, has two main, uh, you know, party coalitions in a way. Uh, one is the Frente Amplio, which is a very eclectic student-run, I would say, or, or at least a former student-run coalition. And then you have the other is Chile Digno, which is the coalition of the Communist Party and the Green Party and other small regional parties. So they have very different platforms. And in the primary, Gabriel Boric ran against Daniel Hadwe, which who was the mayor, is the mayor of one of the uh, neighborhoods in Santiago, Recoleta. And he ran in a way more left-wing platform, aiming to more cooperative forms of engagement, like associations on the ground and popular uh, pharmacies, drugstores and popular supermarkets, kind of in that line. And then you had Boric uh, moving towards more the center and the center right in a way to capture that more uh, that vote so in a more social democratic vein in a way more traditional and Boric won the election so he became the nominee and after the, the the primary he went into conversation with other more centrist parts of the of the coalition and he trimmed down i would say mutilated <laughs> his own program and for example, universal basic income, which was in the first one, was scraped. There were popular participation mechanisms that were also scraped. And many of the other kind of transformative things were left behind and more ambiguous language was used. And today, for example, one of the promises of the campaign was to eliminate the individual pension system in which you save for yourself and you know, the financial institutions move the money around and the, they give very meager pensions. He wanted to eliminate it. And now he said that this elimination of the system could be in a, in a span of 40 years. So this is, in a way, moving toward the, the center, being more, quote unquote, responsible. This has been the tendency of his program as well as his rhetoric. Are there nonetheless still elements of the program that you think are pretty decent? I mean, he's committed to doubling the minimum wage in the country, for instance, although that's obviously from a pretty low level of, of I believe, $300. Yes, well, there's a lot that is much better than what we have, right? But the problem is, is how are you going to do it? And one of the huge problems that we're seeing ahead is that the Congress, will be divided basically almost 50-50 between the right-wing coalition and the opposition. And he is, and his coalition is a, is a minority in the opposition. They have less than 20% of the, of the Senate. And the right-wing coalition has 50% of the Senate. So they would have to be in agreement with their right-wing parties in order to pass any legislation. So yes, there are great things that are there that would improve 
the country much and, and the uh, material well-being of most people. Uh, however, uh, it is not clear what is the path ahead and if that is going to actually even happen because the new minister of finance is part of the traditional kind of neoliberal left, if you will, and very not prone to changing the rules of the game, but actually reforming more than radically transforming, which it is what the country actually needs right now. And after this uprising and the uh, constituent process that is undergoing right now. You're referring there to Mario Marcel, the head of the Chilean Central Bank. I mean, it was interesting reading the international business press here, where his appointment has very much been welcomed and is clearly seen as a signal that Boric intends to lead a, a fairly moderate government. You've mentioned already social democracy. I mean, do you regard Boric's political inclinations as very much social democratic and, and that he seeks really to, however realistic or not, to try and transform Chile into something closer to European style social democracy, although even using that term is kind of complicated because European social democracy in some ways is continually being eroded by marketization. But do you think that's kind of the limit of his political horizon? Yes, he is very much uh, social democrat. He, he has said multiple times that this is the objective and they is, is part of this uh, reasonable uh, kind of uh, horizon. However, as you may, as you are, you know, saying right now, which is true, is that this model is being eroded by different policies, neoliberal policies and regulations and the advancement of corporations and their power within the system. So in a way, it's an horizon that is already eroding. And the problem is that it, in order to get very neoliberal, small state where everything is private country into a social democratic country, transform it into that, you need really to go beyond reasonable and small and slow kind of policies and transformations because you need to pay for it. And if you don't have the money to pay for it, then it cannot be done. So therefore, you cannot just increase the taxes on mining, for example, just a percentage or two. You need to actually nationalize it in order to be able to pay for the welfare state that he has in mind. However, this is not what he's advocating, and this would go beyond the horizon. However, now there was a, the Constitutional Convention opened participatory process of citizen initiatives for articles in the Constitution. So with 15,000 signatures, you can get you know, a hearing at the convention and maybe your article could be incorporated and voted into the constitution. And one of these articles is pushing for the complete nationalization of mining and natural resources like lithium, which is now in the forefront of you know, the, the race for new energy sources. And yes, and this is a huge amount of money uh, and the government that is coming out now, the right-wing government has actually created a, a contract basically with, have given contracts out already in a very corrupt fashion, very against the rules. 
add to a couple of already very profitable mining corporations. And this is a very polluting form of mining the lithium uh, in the north of Chile. So this is, this is something that needs to be controlled and not just given away by concessions and then having small percentage back in taxes. So this is not what Boric is pushing for. But at least the people are and uh, is being is going to be discussed because they already got the 15 signatures. So maybe Boric will be able to hear, you know, the popular demands and actually veer in that direction. We'll come back, I think, to the uh, Constitutional Convention. But before we do, just further on the election itself. So turnout in the second round was 55.6%. Which, although it's the the highest figure since voting became non-compulsory in 2012, it's still pretty low, uh, particularly in the context of of, of a leftist movement that seeks to mobilise the support of of working-class Chileans. And some have argued that the election result does not reverse the trend towards this kind of opposition between society at large and the political parties which is also present on the left. I mean, for instance, I believe some Chilean student unions in the past have called for abstention in, in previous elections. Do you see now with the election of the, of the new government any growing convergence between the left social movements and the parties? And does the prospect of a left government that may struggle to get much of its agenda passed through Congress, does that threaten a a deepening of the alienation of people from electoral politics? Yes, I think the alienation between, you know, of people from politics is enduring and pervasive and it's not changing. This high percentage that Boric got in the second round are really, quote-unquote, borrowed votes. He, they're not his. There was a problem with uh, the the framing in the campaign that allowed him to win, but in a very precarious situation based on the extra-parliamentary left, basically in the left that, as you say, doesn't vote or, you know, just organizes and mobilizes, but doesn't, but refuses to participate from the government and the system as a whole. So in the first round, he only got second place. The first place was the far-right Pinochet apologist, Jose Antonio Cast. Also the son of an actual member of the Nazi party, I believe. Yes, he was a soldier and a Nazi party member. And he came to Chile with false Red Cross papers. <laughs> and uh, basically, he built his little business in rural Chile, and um, the, the Cass family was very influential during uh, the dictatorship, with uh, one of the brothers of Antonio being actually in the Pinochet government. Uh, so basically, they uh, they are influential, and then Cast uh, has been riding the far-right, xenophobic wave that has started in Europe, but that has spilled over everywhere. And this, basically, his win in the first round of the presidential election made everybody go into override, saying and the, the popular sectors were very scared, saying basically that this was going to be a return to the Pinochet era. So even though they were not supporters of Boric or uh, Aprevo Dignidad at all, 
people came out to vote for his coalition, people that didn't vote before. So 1.27 million people who abstained from voting in the first round came out to cast the ballot for Boric. However, he, in the social media everywhere, he was portrayed as the lesser evil or, you know, the yellow reformist <laughs> and that he was better than the Nazi, <laughs> that kind of, like, language. So, therefore, he doesn't really have the people behind him. It's just his party. And now he agreed because he has such a weak position in Congress. He uh, has uh, allied with the parties of the ex-concertacion. The center-left. Yeah, the center-left, neoliberal left, if that is uh, oxymoron actually runs, is that they are the new transformative government has incorporated members of that coalition to the cabinet and actually is 29% of the cabinet is ex-concertacion members. So more than the Communist Party, which only has 17% of the cabinet. So we have a kind of a Boric who went to the center, even though he won the election with the votes of the left that is unwilling to participate in general in other elections and only came out just to save the country from fascism, basically. In the wake of the election and the appointments made to the new cabinet on the 21st of January, Many people will have seen the image on social media of Maya Fernandez Allende, the new Minister of Defence, as a one-year-old baby with her grandfather, President Salvador Allende, who was, of course, deposed and, and died in the 1973 coup led by Augusto Pinochet and, and other military leaders. Obviously, part of the appeal of that image and, and the fact of Maya Allende being in charge of the defence ministry is, is the idea of the election as in, in some way partially writing, uh, you know, a great, terrible, historic wrong. And there's also something very appealing in thinking of the new government as being in some way connected to the popular movements of the 60s and the 70s and, and the popular unity government. How do you see Boric and, and the government he's leading in terms of its lineage and, and connections to the Allende era and also of the, the connections of the protest movement with that time? I think the connection that is being drawn between uh, Boric and Aprovo Dignidad and the coalition general, the parties and the student movements uh, with the movements of the 60s and 70s is a connection that is not real. In a way, it is not the people that we have today are not really connected to them, only rhetorically and symbolically. And I think this connection that is being drawn uh, is on purpose. During the campaign, actually, it was very funny seeing the supporters of Boric trying to, at all times, draw a connection between him and Salvador Allende, saying that he was the new Allende, and Allende had the famous pictures of him with his shoes all covered in mud after going in the, you know, the encampments and going on the terrain, right, on the territory, going and 
as speaking to people. And people were taking pictures of Boric's footwear, you know, to uh, signal that he was also on the ground and he was doing it, right? So it is a very symbolic, there was a lot of memes and, and, and other posters coming from civil society trying to draw this connection on purpose. And then we have this very symbolic appointment of uh, Maya Fernandez to the cabinet of defense. And we need to remember that Chile has more than three times more budget for the military than compared to the neighbors devoted to the military than any in the region. In the region, we are the very kind of highly militaristic because part of what the legacy of the dictatorship was is that the military would have their own kind of part of the budget without the government being able to touch it. So there is a lot of spending in weapons and there is uh, pension schemes for the, the military and uh, there's a really apartheid between, you know, the rest of civilians and in how the state treats them. So I think something that there needs to happen in terms of it needs to change and maybe this symbolic appointment will be used to upend, you know, this very unfair state of affairs. So I think it is more symbolic than anything else. And part also of a change, or at least like a, like a um, traffic of, of, you know, what they give and what a board is giving, because in this appointment, the Socialist Party is the most prevalent party in the cabinet. <laughs> so there is some exchange going on uh, because they need the votes in the lower house and they need the support of the Socialist Party and the Party for Democracy, which was this instrumental party that break, broke off from the Socialist Party to support them in, in, in the Senate as well, in order to have anything at least being discussed in Congress and not be completely blocked by the, by the right wing. So I think it is a very symbolic appointment. And I think also there is a very kind of millennial kind of government in which the optics are heightened. They are very concerned about how things look. So there was this picture of the new cabinet going around in social media compared to the cabinet in 1990, where we're only men in suits. And here there were all kinds of like colorful, you know, and clothing and even two children were on stage with their mothers, you know, and, and uh, there, there were lots of women. So it looks great. The same as the appointment of the granddaughter of Allende to the defense ministry also looks great. But and then to what what is going to entail, we are yet to know. You've already touched on it a little bit, but a major outcome of the huge 2019 protests during the previous conservative government of Sebastian Piñera was the establishment of the Constitutional Convention, which will rewrite the Pinochet-era constitution. The convention has been praised on the left for the political radicalism of its membership and for its diversity, which you've, you've also just talked about, um, particularly the election of the Mapuche indigenous rights activist and linguist Elisa Loncon as president of the convention. How significant do you think the emergence of this so-called new Chile that, that figures such as Loncon represent? Because I appreciate the point that optics seem very important to 
parts of the Chilean left. But nonetheless, do you think it's significant that these institutions, whether it's the new cabinet or the constitutional convention, are representing a much broader swathe of, of Chilean society? Yes, I see the convention is in itself something that uh, an instrument that has put into everybody's, uh, you know, uh, TV screens, the Mapuche and other indigenous peoples as having authority in a place of power, in a way. This is radically different. It is, uh, again, uh, there's gender parity in the convention as well. So half of the members are women. So again, there is and uh, there is this optics that is very good for society, a society that is very machista. So in a way, it is very good that optics are changing. However, the election of Loncon, and actually Loncon is not the president anymore. We can talk about that. There has been a rotation. Part of the rules of self-government of the convention that were approved at the beginning was very kind of horizontal and inclusive and in a rotation basis. So nobody kind of claims to power. This was the idea. So uh, she was the first president to be elected, and it, it was very much about optics. She was there a symbolic figure, and she also placed plurinationality, the idea that we have different nations that need autonomy within the same country, and this needs to be addressed in the, in the Constitution. She put that theme, that topic, as plurinationalism and not merely recognition, but actually autonomy as a principle in the center of the discussion. She made it as something where it was normal, something that was very radical, that was in the margins, I would say. She put it in the center. And this was great. It's something that is, of course, it's going now plurinationality is something that it will uh, for certain, go into the constitution. However, as everything else in the juridical world, uh, something that is just declared is not something that is going to be materialized. So there is a danger of just not going uh, further enough uh, in terms of like leaving the performativity of it all. You know, the the optics, the declaratory and aspirational character of these concepts and actually move to give autonomy and sovereignty over their territories uh, to the indigenous populations that we have in Chile. So there is a recognition of, you know, equality within the nations, the Chilean nations and the indigenous nations and the actual power that they will have within the new scheme. So plurinationality doesn't bring you that. It's just a recognition. And that is as something that now it needs to be put into actual mechanisms. So for this second part of the discussion that now they're starting actually to vote this week, in general, the articles for the Constitution, the, there was new elections, and we have two, a, a president, also a woman, that comes from the social movements, Maria Elisa Quinteros. She's an independent and as vice, vice president, we have Gaspar Dominguez, also uh, independent, that comes also from the rural area and is very much committed to popular participation, finding popular participation and not just consultative participation. So I think now it could be the time for this kind of new setup 
to actually bring mechanisms for the indigenous peoples to be able to self-govern and have uh, autonomous decisions within their territories, and also for Chilean communities or the, the, the rest of the communities in the country to actually have that power too. So I think it's very auspicious. However, the radicality of the convention has been hyped in the international media. Only around 20% of the people inside the convention are actually independent. They are not connected to political parties, which are part of the problem, the political parties that have governed Chile in the last 30 years. And there is a supermajority rule that was imposed uh, on the convention. So every article of the constitution has to be approved by a two-thirds supermajority in the convention. And that means the most radical things will not pass because they will need, you know, the center right to be on board. It's been argued by some people that the establishment of the constitutional convention was a concession from the Piñera government that they agreed to because it might serve to canalise the energy of the protest movement in a less threatening direction at a point when Chilean society seemed really quite ungovernable at the, at the height of the protests. Do you agree with that analysis or has the convention process been one that the right has not been able to control quite as much as they'd hoped to, perhaps? I think the uh, constitutional convention and the way the rules that were drawn and were imposed were part of an exit pact between, you know, the government, which at that point had approval rating below 5%, basically in the error, in the margin of error, (laughs) and the opposition who, the same as in, you know, in the 1990s, the opposition to Pinochet, parties were very eager to actually be the government. So they pacted with Pinochet in order to get there. And one of the things that they agreed upon was to not not call a constituent convention, because that was the reasonable thing to do the moment you get back to democracy, right? To write your own rules of the game. Uh, That was foreclosed because it was a pact, as an exit pact of the dictator, basically. And I think this was the same thing. The demands for this convention, they were crystallized. They were all the other demands were crystallized into a demand for a constituent convention. And if there was going to be a constituent convention with articles decided by majority, then you can say goodbye to the neoliberal model. You know, this was it. So the only way that the right-wing coalition was going to control the process and allow for some things to change, but not all, and therefore protect the model as they, because it's serving them as a class, basically, and the corporations that are profiting from national resources and all these things, they would need to control the process. And for that, you need to write the rules, right? Not allow for popular participation, binding popular participation. They were very, very strict kind of guidelines. Uh, And therefore, it was a way to get out of the political crisis that would have ended in civil war, maybe, and give like this institutional channel for the demands to go through in a way, but in a very controlled manner. And we will see now with the voting of the articles 
that many of the articles that are deemed transformative and necessary will not be able to pass the two-thirds. So then we will be, and there will, there will be unrest, but Piñera will be out of government. <laughs> it will be Boris who had to, uh, will have to kind of like deal with it. So it will be problematic, I would say. Which do you regard as, as the most transformative of those articles? So there are several. So as I said before, the nationalization of resources is a must. You cannot do anything. You cannot expand the welfare state, the minimal welfare state that we have, very minimal, non-existent only for the poor, actually. So in order to expand services, national services and universal services, you need So for that, you need to tap into the resources of the country in a responsible manner. Because what is happening now that uh, the royalty, what it's called, the mining tax, is very low compared to other countries. And the control over the environmental impact is very low. So pollution is uh, rampant everywhere. So in a way, we need to take control of sources of funding. Also, you need to pass some kind of, and that is not part of the constitution, but it's also needed a kind of a wealth tax or something that will put an end to the progressive inequality in Chile. Chile is one of the most unequal countries in the world with the 1% owning half of the wealth of the country and growing. Okay, So this is something that needs to be addressed because you need the funding for the services. And then you have all the kind of pillars of social well-being. You have, you know, health, the healthcare system, the pension system, the education system. And this is something that needs to be addressed because the majority of people in Chile are in a very precarious situation in terms of the services that they have and the access to clean water, to electricity and all the rest. So that needs to be addressed. But I think from my side, from a kind of a democratic power perspective, the most important of all the reforms would be to give binding power to the people in the in the sense of uh, citizen initiatives in order to actually bypass the Congress or the government in a way itself in order to pass reforms that could be blocked by this divided Congress that we will have for at least two years. We don't know what's going to happen with the convention, if there's going to be a transitory, a temporal law that will force disbanding of this Congress and the election of others. We, we don't really know, but we can project that at least we're going to have this divided Congress for at least two years. That would be safe to say. So I think for that, those two years, if the transformations are not passed to Congress, you need another way to pass it. And I would say that is from the popular sector, in a way, from the citizenry. The, and the thing is, today we have the initiatives going into the convention, and we have had thousands of them. And people want to participate, and it needs to be given a channel in order to bypass, as I said, this kind of oligarchic grip over the political process. Just going back to the election for a moment. So although the headline story outside of the country has been the return of the left, as you've described, Jose Antonio Cast came first in, in the first round of the election in late November, narrowly winning more votes than Boric. 
Could you talk a little bit about the kind of politics that Cast represents and how the two far-right parties that comprise the Christian Social Front, how they relate to the, to the Pinochet era? So um, Jose Antonio Cast, he is a lawyer by training and he is in a family, as I said before, of a very far-right family of politicians with a father that was an ex-Nazi soldier and a family very influential during the dictatorship. Uh, he was part of the Independent Democratic Union, Yaudi Party, which was founded in 1983 by Jaime Guzman, who was the jurist and Pinochet advisor. So he was part of that far-right party until 2017, when he exited the party and then created its own party, which he named Republican Party, as it kind of uh, mimicking the Republican Party in the U.S. And this party basically is a nationalist party. It's a nationalist party that is clearly xenophobic, that is against immigrants and is uh, patriarchal in the sense of that going against women, for example, that are not married, you know, or, or giving subsidies to married couples, very um, in the moral, in the moral strategy, very close to the evangelicals. And actually, Cass has been collaborating with evangelicals in the U.S. in order to preserve the traditional family and going against, quote unquote, gender ideology. So this new party, which is, has been the far, far right, if you want, if you will, the extreme right, because we have a strong far right and very normalized far right in Chile. So this is a really going in favor of imposing the more authoritarian kind of politics that Pinochet was uh, sponsoring and having Pinochet as a hero. There's no there's no denouncing and there has been no kind of reconciliation in Chile and no no law against negation of the crimes. So he has been very in favor and he open in his approval of the Pinochet time and coming to this kind of more centralized and authoritarian kind of politics in order to clean the house. This is kind of the the rhetoric, and and um, he his platform was very anti-communist, very virulent anti-communist, and he in in his platform he wanted to create an international network for persecuting radical left wing activists, <laughs> uh, kind of uh, going back to the Condor years, right? Which, which obviously has a has a lot of resonance with the Pinochet era, given the coordination between different security services in in Latin America, right, and the CIA. Yes, the Condor year. So the Condor operation. He basically wants to have a Condor operation 2.0. <laughs> and this is very open. He wanted to abolish, you know, the Ministry of Women. He wanted to get out of the UN. You know, all these kind of outrageous things. And basically all the right-wing parties voted for him. So it was not, he was not fringe. He made the fringe you know, part of the mainstream. And now he is in this coalition with the evangelical right in Congress, and they have around 10% of the uh, lower house and are basically driving the right-wing coalition right now. They're very influential because he is very popular. 
And I think he will have a new chance to run for president once Boric turns up. So it's something to be very aware that the far right is just kind of is going to capitalize in any more like stagnant politics that will come about because of this divided Congress, for example, they will capitalize in the discontent. And actually this week, there was an attack on immigrants in the north of Chile with a far-right activist going and dismantling encampments in the border and uh, kind of burning the possessions, the few possessions of these very vulnerable migrants. And the police were basically protecting the people, vandalizing the place. And uh, this is part of what uh, is uh, fueling hate in the borders, but also in the Chilean society, because this gets normalized when we have these uh, leaders actually saying it on TV and making it just ordinary. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.